You're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Olver. This is Kim, and welcome to the 110th episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, I welcome my friend and choice theory colleague, Brian Zeman. Brian is a career educator, trainer, facilitator, and program designer with over 40 years in settings from elementary through high school to correctional centers and community college and university. Welcome, Brian, and thank you so much for joining us today to talk about lessons learned from your 40 years in the educational system. Thank you, Kim. Glad to be here. One of the things I was hoping you'd talk to us about is your biggest educational project. Can you share that with us? I'd be glad to. It was in 1974, which is a long time ago. I was, at the time, department head of English in a high school in Manitoba. I heard about this training center that was in southern Manitoba, and it sounded like they were doing some pretty exciting things in life skills and adult education. So I had thought, well, maybe I'll go down and have a look. And instead of an adult job, I got hired to be the principal of the school. What it turned out to be was the Department of National Defense facility that had been reconfigured to become an environmental training center. The plan was that adults from across Canada would come to our center and stay for up to two years and live in the community, take life skills training. We had some industries in which they could work if they were good workers. They would learn self-sufficiency. They'd learn about themselves, learn about how to relate to others, how to develop a community, how to budget, how to look after things that they needed to look after. And their kids would go to a school. The school that I became principal of had been a national defense school based on the idea that everyone walks on the yellow line and everybody says, yes, sir, no, sir, and it all works. So the teachers that had stayed in the school were used to the idea that if a kid misbehaved in their classroom, all they had to do was tell the principal, and the principal had three three ring binders filled with rules and regulations about how to handle kids. One of the ways they handled the kids was the principal couldn't inflict enough harm on them, and he would refer them to the base commander, and the base commander would call the parents in. They had to control this kid. Other side of the school was based on the idea that teachers thought kids should be able to do anything they wanted based on life skills. And so anything the kids were doing, hanging from the ceiling or whatever, was deemed to be a good thing. So I came into the middle of this kind of lunatic fringe on both ends. So what I brought with me was what I knew. I wasn't fully certified in reality therapy yet. I was working toward it. I had taken quite an extensive training program in something called Confluent Education from the University of California in Santa Barbara. And I also, along the way, discovered a Polish-American guy, Alfred Korzybski. He developed what's called general semantics. And it's really, how does language work? Either we control our language or our language will control us. In choice theory terms, If we let language run us, then we're on the external psychology side of things. The other thing I discovered along the way was a guy named James Moffat. And if you've had ever anything to do with English, James Moffat is amazing. He's dead now, but he left a great legacy of how English and all languages actually are interrelated. For example, we teach reading. 
but we don't also teach the idea that when we're reading, actually we're listening. Our listening vocabulary is always greater than our reading vocabulary. When we're reading something, it may be words that we have listened to and just didn't realize that they also have a print dynamic to them. All of our uh, pieces of we're either putting in or taking in information by either reading and listening. We take in by expressing ourselves, by talking and writing, we're putting out. One of the things that really helps kids that have a hard time learning things is because we often try to push them to learn what we want them to learn in the way we want them to learn it. Most people have a way of learning something. And if we can begin to help them use their methodologies, then they can more readily and more actively participate in this thing we call education. Visual learners give them a chance. So every classroom lesson should have something to do with visual information, visually handling something. Auditory learners respond better, think better, and accumulate information better if they hear it. Tactile learners are better if they're touching something. So designing our curriculum, if each lesson has an opportunity to do one or more or all of those things with the same material, kids then have a much better chance of immersing and understanding. My graduate work was in curriculum development. One of the things I became very good at is being able to see in my mind what would happen in a classroom if we do these things. If I could go back, Brian, to when you said that they had such a big volume of rules for these kids, I know that you took care of that. I think you told me in a prior conversation that you got it down to just three. Can you share with us what those three rules were? I can. Three rules we came up with for our school was, number one, look after yourself. Number two, look after others. And number three, look after the school, look after the property. When we were talking with kids, we were out at recess or in the classroom or wherever, when the kid was doing something, either it wasn't good for him or it wasn't good for somebody else or it wasn't good for the property. Ask him the number one question of reality therapy. What are you doing? And the kid would say, oh, oh yeah, yeah, that's what I'm doing. Okay, how's that working out? And pretty soon, the kids would automatically know the process of talking themselves through what it was that we were doing. And they would say, okay, yes, yes, I wasn't looking after myself very well with that. Or I guess I really was kind of picking on them. Or the school does need to be clean, and I was making a mess. They became easy to apply. Kids could recognize them and understand them. There was no big hassle about, oh, you did this, and we now have to bring out this rule and this regulation. Ultimately, it was, what can you do to fix this? So the same thing began to happen with in the classroom. The hierarchy of being the principal, of course, was when a kid was misbehaving in the classroom, the teacher would want to send him or her for some kind of fixing, I guess. The kid would come to my office and we would have the say, this conversation. What were you doing in the classroom? Well, this is what I was doing, blah, blah, blah. Oh, and how did that work out? Teacher told me to stop. And what happened? Well, I didn't stop. I guess I was being disruptive because I was bothering other kids. So what did the teacher want? She wanted me to be more attentive. We would talk about that and say, I want you back in your classroom is where I want you. I want you to take advantage of what's going on in there. I want you to gain as much education as you can. If you're sitting in my office, that isn't going to work out. 
What I want you to do is make up a little plan about what you're prepared to do to go back to the classroom and participate. We'd work on writing skills. We'd work on handwriting. We'd come up with a plan. Whatever the plan was, the kid would say, well, here's my plan. I'd read it, look at it. We'd talk about it. We'd say, how likely is it that you will be able to deliver this plan? Some kids would come up with really ridiculous things and say, well, not very likely. Say, okay, well, we need a simpler plan and we need a better plan. Eventually, we get a little plan. Kid and I would say, with this plan, let's you and I go back to the classroom and we'll talk to the teacher for a minute and you can go back in the classroom and go to work. Kid and I would walk down the hallway, go to the classroom, knock on the door. Teacher would come. He'd say, that's what I was doing in the classroom. And now I'm willing to do this in the classroom. Teacher would say, okay, good deal. Some kids I saw a lot of times. Some kids I saw once or twice, and that was it, because they began to take on the responsibility of looking after themselves, regulating their own behavior. It wasn't other people making them do anything. It was them doing what they were doing. It was sometimes interfering. They became much more active and better learners because they focused more of their attention on what was actually the curriculum for that day. Terrific. I love that. So you give simple, short, easy to remember rules and you hold kids accountable for following them. You don't hurt them when they don't follow them, but you help them form some corrective action to do better the next time. And they're the ones that are coming up with that plan. You are not forcing it, making them do things that they don't want to do. It's something that they come up with based on what it is that they ultimately want. Am I hearing that right? You heard that right. And that worked like a charm. One of the things that uh, we did come up, had to come up with was there's always going to be conflict, either in the classroom or on the playground or someplace between kids. So one of the other teachers, he had a number of kids in his classroom, a grade six classroom, that were having a hard time without hassling each other. They would come to me, first of all, and I'd say, okay, what's going on, blah, blah, blah. And they would tell me, and I'd say, whoa, what were you doing? I don't want you to tell me what he was doing. I want you to tell me what you were doing. And then same for you. What were you doing? Not what he was doing. What were you doing? In order to be able to hear, you have to use communication skills. So one of the communication skills and part of the conflict resolution plan was when somebody would say, this is what I want, in order for the other person in the conflict, in order for him to be able to say anything, he first had to, just what you did a few minutes ago, paraphrase and feedback. This is what I heard. How accurate is that? Pretty soon they got pretty good at this. They would realize, no, no, I can't just suspend my thoughts here while I'm thinking of what I'm going to talk about. They would come to my office and they'd sit down and work it through. They'd work out a plan and say, okay, what can we do? How can we fix this? How can we manage this in a better way? And away they'd go. Most of my audience understands at least some about reality therapy, so I'm sure that they're hearing some things that come from Glasser's work and things that I've talked about and other guests that I've had. One of the things that you said that was so unique is this piece about language. If you don't control your language, your language is going to control you. And I'm curious, how does language support what you're talking about, this responsible thinking, speaking, and living? The key to language is the structure and how we express ourselves. If I believe that it's your fault that I'm upset or it's your doing that I'm happy, then I believe that you made me that way. When I think, I can only think in pictures and words. 
when I talk to myself in my own mind, I say, Kim made me happy. If I really look at language and I look at choice theory and I look at reality therapy, there's a gap that most people don't understand actually exists. The gap between what you do, what sense I make of it, and then what I do with it. And that gap is the difference between understanding external psychology and living a responsible life based on understanding how I can manage myself better. Mondays don't make me crabby. Traffic doesn't make me crazy. I can act crazy. I can do all kinds of things. I can say, well, I'm not really happy Monday's here, but it's not Monday making me anything. The more I express myself clearly, using the pronoun I to represent what it is that I'm thinking about, what I want to talk about, what I want you to hear about me, rather than using the word you to either point to you and assume that you're doing something or that I want to deflect for myself, and I say you because now I want a bigger group to somehow be part of that. The more I personalize my language, the more I own it and say, I am doing this, this is me, this is me expressing my view, and then I can be responsible for that. If I think it's your doing or someone else's doing or whatever's doing, then I'm out of control. It's a hard thing for most people to understand. If you listen to people talk, you can tell right away. When you're doing training in, in reality therapy, for example, you'll be able to tell if you listen to people whether they actually have taken in and understood reality therapy and choice theory by how they talk. That's right. Your language changes. Your language changes. I've had this discussion with a few trainers over the years that say, well, I don't make a big deal of that. And they say, well, I do. I'm constantly asking them to focus. So when they say, well, you know, when you're playing a game and it's not going well, you tend to get upset. And I would challenge them on that and say, well, who's getting upset? Who's the upset person here? Well, that's me. <laughs> I'm getting upset. I get upset when it's not going the way I want. Okay, that's clear. I can understand that. So you make me upset because you're always winning. That's not fair. <laughs> that's not fair. No, life isn't fair. Too bad. <laughs> Yeah, it's fun because if you use the choice theory language and you hear other people talking who don't use choice theory language, it can actually make me chuckle sometimes because I hear things like, well, I had no choice or I didn't have time or he made me so angry and it just kind of makes me chuckle and then it makes me a little sad. Actually, it's not making me chuckle or making me sad. I'm just chuckling and feeling slightly sad because I think when we don't take responsibility for our life, we miss out on a lot of things. People, humans have the tendency to take all the credit when things go well in our life. And when things aren't going well, we like to blame others. But if we take the responsibility for all of it, then we look at how can I do it better? The things that I did that I didn't particularly like the outcome of, what can I do to improve that instead of blaming someone else, taking no responsibility, and then it robs me of the opportunity to improve and to learn. I love that. Language is, I believe, crucially important. That little statement about accepting 100% responsibility for your life and how it turns out. And even if it isn't true, living your life as though it were. I hung that up in my classroom in the correctional center. I used to hang things on the walls. Guys would come in and I'd never tell them I hung up something new, but they would look for it. These were little quotes or expressions. It's amazing how many guys that I've seen since they were in the correctional center and since I've been there 
would still say, you know, I remember that one quote. Overall, in all of this work that you did to turn this particular school around, how well did it work when you got things working the way that you liked? How well did it work? It was easy. <laughs> easy. But easy by then. The center was a training center for treaty Indians in Canada. Families came from all over Canada for up to two years of residency in the life skills program, and the kids would go to our school. We were a school district, not affiliated with any other school in the whole province. To be sure that we were actually a school, the uh, general manager of the corporation had gotten a hold of the Department of Education in Manitoba. In the spring of the year, they sent out an inspectoral team, and they would spend five days in our school, half a dozen of them. And they would go from classroom to classroom, talk to people and see and write stuff down. Then they'd send a report. After the fourth year of doing this, they never asked the question what we were actually doing. The head inspectoral guy, on a Friday afternoon, he dropped into the school and he said, I don't want to go back to Brandon. You got time for coffee. So we sat and we had coffee. Finally, he said, you know, what are you really doing here? And so I gave him that 20-minute talk about helping people developing programs and staying consistent with learning about yourself, learning how to positively affiliate with others, learning how to gain mastery in what you're doing, setting goals, mastering your learning, taking care of yourself. I stopped and he stopped. <laughs> he sat there for a minute or so. He said, all the years that we've been coming out here, he says, and I never saw the whole picture and I never asked you. This is the most exciting thing I've ever been part of. And I didn't really recognize or appreciate it as much as I could have. It's a compliment. Yeah. One of the other ways in which our school began to integrate with the community, with the parents in their life skills training, was that most of the parents had had horrendous educational experience themselves. One father, he said his son should, he was in grade six. And he said, that's enough education. So we had a chat about it. And I said, well, grade six what do you think that'll do? He said, well, when he went to the residential school, he learned how to hoe potatoes and pray, and he got a grade three, and it's been good enough for him. And so his son with a grade six should be able to do twice as well. But most of the parents, when they first came to the school, we would arrange for parent-teacher interviews, and we would leave them very open-ended. We'd spread them over two or three or four weeks. We wanted parents to have the opportunity to come in, say hello, get to know us a little bit. We can get to know them a little bit. Visually, when somebody who has not had a good educational experience themselves, when they come into a school, if you physically watch them, they will shrink because they know they don't belong there. And this wasn't a pleasant place for them to be. Once we weren't rushing and they could bring the kids, it became a bit of a social event. They would walk out and say, yeah, that was okay. Now I understand what he's doing when he brings stuff home and shows it to us, that this is important for him, it's important for us. One of my teachers came to my office door one time, I was happened to be there. She'd been in the middle of teaching something, the parent had come to the door and just was ranting and raving. So she brought the parent to me. So the mother came in and we chatted for a while. Turned out she was upset because her husband had started drinking again. We had a chat about that and how she was going to handle that. And toward the end of the conversation, I said, Oh, uh, by the way, you still owe us for the school picture. Oh, she says, yes, I do. So later when I gave the money to the teacher who was collecting on behalf of her students, I said, oh, here's the money for the pictures. The teacher was just flabbergasted. She was out of control. 
and now she's happy and walking out and paying the money. It's often just a matter of if you're prepared to hear what people have to say. We often say, how are you doing today? But we really don't care because we're not prepared to spend the time. We could just say hello. Or I'm fine and just keep on going. Yeah, but I'm not really. I have something to say. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say it because you're not receptive to it. Right. Or I don't think you are. I don't think you are. That would be an assumption on my part. Exactly. I want to tell you that I could talk to you even longer, but I'm running out of time here for our interview. And I just wanted to ask if you have anything that we haven't talked about that you'd like to add before we close. Well, just get back to what we talked about right at first, that 40 some years ago, the people are still looking fondly back at that time in their lives and saying how important it was for them to live in that center, to go to that school, to have that kind of training. What a testimony, really, to have students coming back after 40 years and saying that was a really meaningful time in my life. I can't imagine a better testimony to the work that you did there, Brian. That must make you feel, even though it doesn't make you feel, but you must, make feel, really, right, you know? must make you feel really proud of that time. I am proud of that. So thank you. Well, thank you so much, Brian. I am so thankful that you were able to spend time with us today. If people that are listening would like to get a hold of you, maybe they have some questions. Do you have a way for them to reach you? you send me an email. Okay. Can you give your email address? I'll put it in the show notes okay. for people. Brian, B-R-Y-A-N dot, no, this is American audience. So it it's is. dot Z. <laughs> oh, or Z for those or who Z. aren't, yeah. right? At Shaw dot C-A. Perfect. And I'll have that in the show notes, whether they say Z or Z, it looks the same. Okay. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate you. Okay. Well, thank you, Kim. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was great to think back to 40 years ago. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I also hope you'll join me next week when I'll be interviewing Deb Cox about her Glasser Quality School journey in Australia. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.